Welcome to Modern Career. I'm your host, Mary Humiston. Throughout your whole career journey, you'll be thinking about growing your skills, advancing, changing, and even reinventing yourself. We want to help you do that, and we want to help you live your full potential. In every episode, we cover work and career topics that leverage my global HR leadership, and through interviews and discussions with other career experts and leaders from all over the world. Subscribe and visit us at modern-career.com and see our blog posts, career stories. We also offer coaching and workshops and more. Let's jump into our next episode. Welcome to the Future of Work Implications for Your Career with Ian Ziskin. Ian is the president of Exec Excel Group, a human capital coaching and consulting firm that he founded following a highly successful 28-year career as a corporate business executive. Ian is a board advisor, coach, consultant, teacher, speaker, and author. His global leadership experience includes serving in chief human resources officer and other senior leadership roles with three Fortune 100 companies, Northrop Grumman, Quest Communications, and TRW. He has written four books. His most recent, The Secret Sauce for Leading Transformational Change, will be part of our conversation. Ian is a current and past board member of multiple boards and executive committees. He has a Master's of Industrial and Labor Relations degree from Cornell University and a Bachelor of Science in Management from Binghamton University, where he graduated magna cum laude. He is an elected fellow of the National Academy of Human Resources. Thank you so much, Ian, for joining us today and for sharing all of your insights. Great to be with you, Mary. Thank you for having me. So before we jump in, if you take us back to sort of the beginning, why HR as you were starting your career, or did you start in HR? And tell us a little bit about how you chose the path that you chose. You've had such an interesting and varied career. So take us back, but also maybe how you made some of the pivots and changes along the way to go into you know the corporate world, but then pivot into entrepreneurship. Very early in my career, didn't really know what HR was, but I had this sense, I suppose, of the value and importance of people and the overall effectiveness of an organization. And that's really why I pursued it. Now, to the second part of your question, the career I've had, very lucky to have had the opportunity to do two separate but very related things over the last 41 years. Spent the first 28 years of my career working in HR for large companies in particular, did a wide variety of different types of roles within the profession, the HR business partner kinds of roles, a couple of specialty roles, particularly in learning and development, which was a big passion of mine. And toward the latter part of my corporate life was the chief HR officer for two companies, most recently Northrop Grumman, as you mentioned when you were introducing me. And then about 13 years ago, the entrepreneurial side of me started to emerge and coming out of my corporate life, I decided to launch my own coaching and consulting business, which is what I've been doing for the last 13 years or so. And it's been a portfolio of things. Having the combination of corporate experience and entrepreneurial coaching, consulting experience has been a fantastic journey for me. And I've truly enjoyed it. You said the entrepreneurial bit emerged. Did you 
ever see any inclinations or experience prior in your life prior to that that you'd say, if I look back, you know, there were some entrepreneurial inclinations or you could see it coming or do you think it just kind of emerged at that time? Well, I think I could see it coming in the sense that I always believed even earlier in my corporate life that at some point I might want to try building my own business. That was a curiosity of mine, maybe going all the way back to my childhood when, to be honest, really nobody's parents that I knew, and in those days it was particularly fathers more so than mothers, but nobody's parents that I knew actually even worked for large companies. They all typically ran their own businesses of one sort or another. So that was an environment that I saw early on, even though I had very little exposure to it personally because of my corporate life. And then the other aspect I think that began to emerge well before I ever made the decision to start my own business was just the recognition and realization for myself that even though I loved my corporate career in so many ways, you realize when you're doing a chief HR officer job or even those jobs that lead to it, much of your day is spent solving and addressing the needs and priorities of other people. And I thought, you know, wouldn't it be interesting if I had an opportunity to run a business where I was getting to spend time almost exclusively on the things that were of most interest to me, hanging around with the people that were of most interest to me and having a lot more control over my own destiny. And I realized that in order to do that, I probably would need to spend more time running my own business than I was spending working for large companies. So that's the thought process that I think I went through. But to be perfectly honest, I had no idea whether I was going to like or be any good at running my own business until I tried it, particularly the business development aspects of it, which frankly, as an HR person inside of large companies, typically the problems and issues find you. You don't have to spend a lot of time digging them up or looking for them. They just come to you versus in a role as a coach or a consultant running your own business the business development and marketing aspects are much more important because if you don't put yourself out there, no one will know that you exist. True. You talk about control your destiny, but it isn't all glamorous. It's just a different animal. (laughs) Ian, I'm curious, just going back to that dichotomy you spoke about where the criticality of the capability of human capital management is there, but sometimes there's a gap to the understanding or the embracing of the function. You called it respect. Where do you think that gap is today? Is it bigger, smaller, the set? You know, where do you think it is just in your own opinion? I do believe that the profession has progressed, you know, in many ways over the 40 plus years that I've been engaged in it in a variety of ways. Probably the most notable people having a better understanding of business, business strategy, the value chain by which business makes money, I think that's really important to be an effective HR person. I think the analytical quantitative skills that you see in the profession, particularly around analytics, is much better than certainly when I, when I joined the profession. 
And I also think that there's a wider variety of backgrounds and experiences that people are bringing to HR roles, particularly senior HR roles. And that's also been very beneficial. However, I think the profession is still saddled with the perception, in some cases, the reality that most of the people in the HR profession aren't particularly savvy business people, you know, that they get into the profession because they're people people rather than business and financial and analytical kinds of people, and that they tend to over-rely on relationships and tend to under-rely on data and facts to sell their ideas and make important decisions. Those are all gaps that I think continue to this day. I do think it's better than it was 40 years ago, but I don't think it's at the level yet that it needs to be. And frankly, one of the reasons why I've stayed as actively engaged in the profession as I have is to try to help close some of those gaps. That's terrific. Now, Ian, can you share with us while we're talking about your background and your journey to date, what's something that you learned or something that you took advantage of that as you look back really helped you navigate your career or reach some of the aspirations you set for yourself? Probably one of the more important things that occurred to me very early on was the value of surrounding yourself with people who are smarter than you and better than you at a wide variety of things. This became particularly important, not only because I believed it was valuable, but as a bit of a survival mechanism, because I found myself, particularly earlier in my career, but largely throughout most of my corporate career, being promoted into jobs faster than I probably should have been at a younger age and with less experience than I probably actually needed in order to be successful in those jobs. And so I pretty quickly realized that I didn't know a lot of things that I needed to know in order to succeed in these jobs. But I was fortunate enough to be surrounded by a number of people who did know those things and making sure that they felt included and heard and valued and that their perspectives were going to be taken seriously by me, especially if I was their boss, but also as a peer. I spent a lot of time asking a lot of questions and listening a lot to other people who had wisdom and insight and experience that, frankly, I just did not have. And I learned a ton from being around those people. And that philosophy actually has stayed with me my entire life and career. So even now as a coach or a consultant, I spend an awful lot of time collaborating with, partnering with other coaches, other consultants who don't work for me, but we collaborate on a variety of different projects and learn from each other and help one another. That's the same philosophy that I use throughout my corporate life, where not only inside the companies that I worked for, did I put a lot of emphasis on collaboration and partnering with other people, but I also found myself very actively engaged in a number of professional associations outside of my own company. Why? Because I was surrounded by smart and experienced peers, other chief HR officers, for example, who I could learn from because basically any issue or problem that I was encountering, 
those other individuals to one degree or another had already experienced and you could learn and benefit from those experiences that they had. So this is something that started with me very early in my career as a matter of survival because I was being put into jobs that I wasn't quite ready for. But the idea of surrounding yourself with people who are better than you and smarter than you is something that's stuck with me my whole life, frankly. So, you know, when we're after roles, there's always some amount of stretch. We hope it's not too much, dear. But sounds like you were tapped for a lot of roles early. Why do you think that is? Did you put up your hand or did you show a lot of confidence or why do you think that happened? <laughs> yeah, I often in the moment wondered that and still even looking back on it, you know, many years later, I wonder as well. I think mostly I was very lucky to have some mentors and bosses and others who believed in me and saw some things in me particularly early on, that I'm pretty sure I didn't see in myself. Now, when I asked the question, I did ask the question, you know, why me? And, you know, why is the company making this type of investment in me? Usually the answer is centered around a few things. You know, people seem to see me as somebody who was a quick study, you know, somebody who figured things out pretty quickly, was an active learner, they seem to see me as somebody who was humble enough to recognize that I didn't know everything and that I was willing to learn from and, and listen to others. And they also saw me as somebody who was good at building relationships. So there was a level of trust and engagement that I had with other people that I guess I just took for granted or saw as something you know natural as part of my style. But other people who were giving me this feedback seemed to think that I was pretty good at all of that. And then the final thing was I had a reputation for getting things done. So, you know, delivering results, there were problems that needed to be solved somehow or another. I was able to wrap my arms around them. Again, none of these things really jumped out at me and were obvious to me as being unique or special. But some of the people who were investing in me seemed to believe they were. So I was grateful for the feedback and for the support. That's awesome. And on the flip side of that, is there something you wished you had taken advantage of along the career journey that you look back and say, either I chose not to or I didn't see it at the time? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Probably the single biggest one was I had the opportunity several times during my career journey as an HR person to get out of HR and try my hand at more of an operating role, or at least that was presented to me as a possibility of a thing to do next. Somehow or another, I always found reasons, maybe there were excuses, I don't know, for moving on to the next bigger HR job rather than taking the sidestep to a more operational role. I think at the time, my logic was, and I don't regret this aspect of it, my logic was I probably would be able to move to bigger, broader roles in HR where I had more influence and opportunity to contribute faster than changing gears and moving into an operating role. So there was some logic to my thinking about sticking in HR. But if I look back on it now, 40 years later, I would have to say that I probably would have been a better HR person 
had I picked up some other operational experience along the way, even if I gravitated my way back into HR. Fabulous. It's, it's a great insight. Hindsight's so wonderful thing, right? Let's jump into the future of work and some of the implications for our careers as we think about what's ahead. What's the latest thinking? I think a lot of the latest thinking goes back to what I was referring to maybe a few minutes ago. There are obviously a number of trends that are affecting the changing nature of work, the workforce, and the workplace. There's a few that really keep standing out for me. And I, I've been involved in the future of work in HR game in one way or another for the last nine or 10 years. So it's really something that's very interesting to me. But there's a few things that have stuck, you know, throughout all that time that still need to be fully addressed and resolved. You know, one is the the whole evolution, or some people might even say revolution of technology and the connection to human-machine collaboration, for example, automation, algorithms, artificial intelligence, the whole prospect of human beings being either supplemented by or supplanted by computers and robots and other machines. And you can see all kinds of evidence of disruption or potential disruption in the workforce as technology changes faster than humans have the capacity to learn or evolve. So a lot of people get displaced. You know, some people would say, if you look to some of the labor economists, they would say, depending on the geography, on the industry, on the specific job, there still could be places where there's 70%, 70% unemployment that happen as a result of human beings being replaced by machines or robots or other technology. And so this is a huge implication, not only for the workforce, but also for HR people who historically have grown up worrying about taking care of people and the talent in the organization. Well, what happens when the talent is a robot or artificial intelligence or a computer as opposed to a human being, but they're helping to lead the work, if you will, that's being done by other people. So that's a big trend. The other one that I'll mention for the moment that I think is really happening as we speak, there's been a evolution over the last 10 or 20 years, of course, in increases in the desire for more flexibility in the workplace. In other words, people gradually getting to the point of wanting to be able to work from anywhere whenever it is that makes sense for them with whom they want to work in a role or a capacity that fits their needs and lifestyle. So for example, the gigification of work, more and more people deciding they don't want to be quote unquote traditional employees of an organization, even though they want to engage with that organization, but they want to do it in much more of a freelanced and flexible way, further supplemented by increased desire for flexibility in terms of being able to work remotely, for example, versus having to come into an office. Now, those trends that I just mentioned have been ongoing for 20 plus years, but gradually. And then all of a sudden COVID hit two and a half years ago and things like remote work became center stage literally overnight. And organizations that 
never, frankly, would have considered allowing people or encouraging people to work from home or some other remote location, suddenly had no choice. And now everybody's struggling with what's the right balance between bringing people back to the office versus not only allowing, but encouraging people to work from home or from the local coffee shop or from a mountaintop halfway around the world. And every organization that I interact with almost on a daily basis is wrestling with what's the right balance. And you can see a lot of CEOs struggling with this, for example, where they're making demands that people come back to work, so to speak, as they like to describe it. Well, in reality, people have already been working for the last two and a half, three years. They're just working in a different way from a different place. And many of those people who are being pressured to come back to the office are now essentially saying, no, thanks. I've had a taste of life with much more flexibility than I've ever had. And that suits me really well. And if you're going to force me to come back to a more traditional work model where I have to show up in an office every day, I have choices and options, and I'm going to exercise those options by going to work someplace else. That's causing a great amount of disruption. Some people call it the great resignation. I happen to personally believe that's a little bit of a misnomer because while it is true people are quitting their jobs, they're not quitting life. They're just you know repositioning themselves for what they're going to do next and then reinserting themselves back in the workforce, but in a different format. And organizations have to get caught up to that. Otherwise, they're going to have an increasingly tough time hanging on to their best talent. As you lay these out, and there, there's some big considerations in here, what implications come to mind from the individual perspective, not the company perspective, as somebody thinks about navigating their career? The single biggest thing that comes to mind is the importance of the individual taking responsibility for their own development destiny. I think there's been this mistake and misperception, perhaps, that somehow it's the organization's role to develop me and to create opportunities for me and to kind of tell me what it is I should do next and then provide the resources to do it. And you know, while there's still lots of examples of that type of investment being made by companies in human beings, I think the reality is most of the impetus is on me, the individual, to pay attention to what I want to learn, what I need to know, what kind of skills I need to have in order to remain relevant, and then take the initiative to navigate all the resources that are out there in the world to help me achieve what I want. And going back to what we were just talking about a few minutes ago, having the courage and the initiative to say, if this organization that I work in right now isn't the right place for me or isn't providing enough flexibility or is not providing enough development, I personally have to take the initiative to move on to the next place rather than sitting around frustrated that my organization is not investing in me properly or at all. And so I think what we're going to find is more and more examples of individual initiative. That's a little bit of what I think is happening with 
this thing we seem to be labeling the great resignation is individuals are taking much more initiative at deciding the career that they've had or the jobs that they've been in are no longer interesting or suitable for them. And then they're pushing the reset button and changing jobs, or in some cases, completely changing careers, in other cases, completely changing lifestyles and picking up and moving from one place to another when they never imagined they would do that. So it's not just a matter of working remotely, but it's quite often a matter of deciding that the industry that they've worked in for the last 20 years is no longer interesting and they need to reposition themselves and the kind of skills that they need in order to take control of their own destiny and their own career is a different skill set because the world around them is changing. I think a lot more of that impetus now is coming on the individual rather than the organization. And there's a lot of resources out there, whether it's you know YouTube or various other resources that exist for people to educate themselves rather than waiting for their organization to do it for them. And that's a big change from 20 or certainly 40 or 50 years ago. It's a significant change. And I couldn't agree with you more. I think who else would you want to lead your career but you? And I do think, you know, to your point, and you said this, you know, the, the organization plays a role. Of course they do in the manager. And I, I think you're saying this as well. I think it's really important to try to optimize where you are first and to ask for what you need right where you're at first. I think sometimes people move too quickly and look for it somewhere else before being able to sort of create what they need right where they're at. And sometimes it's possible, sometimes it's not. But I think it's a really critical first step of the initiative. I think that's right. And maybe one of the best examples I've seen recently, I'm not sure about your perspective on this, Mary, but for me, this fairly recent trend of companies beginning to abandon education requirements in favor of focusing on skills that people need for jobs is actually pretty revolutionary if you think about it. Because, you know, for example, anybody who's made the decision to go to college without thinking much about why they were going other than I don't have anything else to do (laughs) or I'm not sure how to credential myself, so I'm going to go to college and then hope I get a job. If I were universities, I would be a little worried about this trend. But I think if I was an individual, I would be really excited about it because it's an opportunity to think about what's the best way to credential yourself. You know, my youngest son is now going through a process of changing careers and he's going through a coding boot camp to try to position himself for software development. And, you know, 20 years ago, I think the only way to do that would have been go back to college and get an undergraduate degree or something in software development. And now there's multiple ways that you can do that. And there are many companies, large and small, that are starting to question their own strategy for hiring and preparing talent in their own organization where they used to believe you had to have a four-year college degree or even a two-year college degree in order to be qualified, quote unquote, for those particular jobs. Now what they're doing is deconstructing the work and basically saying, what are the skills that are required for somebody to be successful in this role and realizing it doesn't necessarily require a college degree to do that. If they're okay with that idea, that completely opens up a whole new avenue of potential talent who wouldn't have been quote unquote qualified previously. And that's a, that's pretty revolutionary, I think. 
Absolutely. Ian, I'd love to touch on your most recent book, The Secret Sauce for Leading Transformation. Can you share with us just a couple of highlights from the book and your views on how should someone navigating their career or someone who aspires to leadership think about this and what they might need to do to prepare themselves to lead in the times that we're in? And I'm sure we're all going to be called to lead through many transformations. Your thoughts? Yes, absolutely. Thanks for asking. I think we'll start with where we start in the book, which is this concept of start with the truth and define reality. It's important in leading transformational change, but it's also important in leading anything, including your own life. Here's what I mean by that. Turns out, as we put this book together, it became very obvious that human beings have this almost limitless capacity to deny, deflect, dismiss data or facts that do not reinforce our preferred view of the internal or external environment. And we tend to obviously instead look for facts, data, and other evidence that basically reinforces you know, the way we think the world should operate. This actually has huge implications for leading transformational change because we can spend a ton of energy trying to convince ourselves that the situation isn't as bad as it seems or that we don't need to take action or that everybody else is wrong and we're right or we just bury our head in the sand and hope it goes away. And you know, each one of those things that I just mentioned only serve to slow down and to derail us, if you will, from addressing the things that need to be addressed. So I'm a firm believer in the situation is what it is. We are where we are, whether we like it or not. Quite often, the things that are affecting us are outside of our control, you know, well outside of our control, but they still affect us. And so having this sense as an individual or as an organization to the openness of dealing with reality is extraordinarily important. I think the second thing maybe that comes through over and over again in the book that I'll mention here is this common misconception that somehow or another successfully leading transformational change is all about being well prepared and anticipatory and seeing around corners and connecting the dots between seemingly disconnected things and somehow the ability to be more prepared and anticipatory makes us quote unquote more strategic and even though there's plenty of examples of well thought out well prepared for anticipated efforts to lead transformational change not only in the book but in life it turns out there's actually even more examples of we didn't see it coming we weren't well prepared we didn't anticipate anything we didn't connect any dots it just basically hit us one of my favorite quotes that we use in the book that i think illustrates this is mike tyson the former heavyweight boxer was being interviewed by a member of the media in advance of one of his heavyweight bouts. And he was asked the question, what's your strategy for the fight? 
And his response was, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And I think there's very much examples of this in life, as well as in the book of, we thought we had a plan, we thought we had it addressed, we thought we saw it coming, we thought we were well prepared, and then reality hits us or punches us in the mouth and we realize we have to adapt, we've got to be more agile, we've got to be quick, and we have to respond to the things that we didn't anticipate. Probably the best example, again, that we've all lived through the last two, two and a half years has been COVID. I don't know about you, I was not smart enough to see it coming. But it's been fascinating to watch not only in my own life, but in everybody else I know, how they've had to adapt over time. And that's a given, I think, as part of large-scale transformational change. I think the last point I'll make, just to summarize some of the things that came out in the book, is use an analogy in the book. I call it a pizza analogy. What does pizza have to do with leading transformational change? And here's the thing that really jumped out at me about this, which is if you look at long-standing tradition. Pizza, for example, first thought to be invented in 997 AD in a place called Gaeta, Italy. A lot of years have gone by since that time. It's become a $150 billion global industry, but a lot has changed. In order to remain relevant, if you look at what's happened with the food and the industry of pizza, whether it's shape, sizes, toppings, cheeses, crusts, the way pizza is prepared, the access outlets by which you can get pizza, and a variety of different secret sauces, everything's basically been reimagined, reinvented, repositioned in order to remain relevant as a food and as an industry. And I think the lesson there is we can be easily lulled into a false sense of security by tradition and things that seem familiar and comfortable, when in reality, we have to constantly be rethinking and repositioning and reinventing ourselves and our organization in order to remain relevant. And there's a million examples, not only in the book, but in life, of why that has proven to be true. That's really awesome. So Ian, you've also had the opportunity to work with so many different kinds of leaders as clients or as colleagues different leaders across the globe. Is there a characteristic or a couple of characteristics or even a practice that you've seen that really enables someone to be a really effective, good leader? One, I'll go back to what we talked about earlier in terms of the value of surrounding yourself with people who are smarter than you in certain ways and are good at certain things that you're not. A lot of the leaders that I've worked for and also worked with have been particularly good at that. Today, I think we tend to think of it under the diversity, equity, and inclusion umbrella. I'm not sure we use that terminology 30 or 40 years ago, but the principles have always applied, which is having the benefit of diverse perspectives and different experiences and ways of thinking about solving problems and the lenses that you have to use in order to evaluate and then address challenges. I think a lot of the leaders that I've been around who are really good leaders happen to be really good at that aspect. Uh, second and related aspect is they tend to be really good listeners. You know, I know you know, whether it's this book we wrote on leading transformational change or leadership more broadly, one of the things that comes up over and over and over again is the importance of communication. And communication, of course, really does matter a lot. But I worry that 
most people think when you say communication, they first gravitate toward tell, 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 explain, 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 explain. And the telling and the explaining obviously is really valuable, but quite often not nearly as valuable as listen, 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 and listen some more so that you get the benefit of other people's points of view and where the problems are and what needs to be resolved. And quite often they also not only understand the problem, but they have very good solutions to those problems. But you have to listen with great intent to understand what perspectives people are trying to share with you. And I would say that most of the highly successful leaders I've been around over the course of my career also happen to be exceptional listeners. Interestingly, you know, you were talking about companies transforming, needing to really embrace and start with reality. I think that's also true of an individual. And so when you talk about surrounding yourself with people who, you know, are smarter and and can help you. I think of that too, that I I think I've surrounded myself with people who help me see reality, if you put it that way. Because I think as an individual, just like a company, we can get a little caught up in just wanting to keep it a bit rosy or see the good things. And really being able to listen and embrace people who help us see, well, there's also some development and some reality here. And, and that's okay. They can do it in a gentle way and in a way that and it helps you embrace that because the same points you made about a corporation or a company, a business, I think really apply on the individual level. Yeah. Well, one of the things I figured out a long time ago is organizations are a compilation of individuals and they tend to take on a lot of the same characteristics, particularly of the leaders. And so if you happen to have an organization, for example, where the leaders are not great listeners or where they're extremely good at denying the reality of what's happening in the world, then the organization that they lead more often than not will take on the same characteristics. And I think organizations have cultures and personalities, and they're usually a collection of the individuals who have similar personalities in many ways. And so organizations that I've been part of or have consulted for that seem to be in the most trouble are those that have really strong barriers and filters to screen out reality. So true. Ian, were there some early influences that have had an impact on let's say, the life you've led, the kind of leader you are, or your career journey to date? Probably the single biggest influence was early in my personal life. When I was about 11 years old, my father was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, which, you know, in those days in particular, that was a very difficult disease to diagnose. And they really didn't know what to do with it, you know, at that time. So it took a long time for them to figure out what his medical condition was. And there weren't a whole lot of treatments that were very effective at that time. Eventually, a couple of years later, when I was 13, he was just short of his 47th birthday. He passed away from complications related to multiple sclerosis. Now, obviously, you know, that was a pretty traumatic experience for myself and my mother and my, my brother, who was nine at the time. 
but it also defined my life <laughs> and my outlook in a lot of ways because I remember thinking even at that young age, I was 13 when he died, that I could use this as an excuse and be miserable and feel like life was unfair, even though I probably did feel like life was unfair at that time. Or I could try to learn something from it, take a negative experience and turn it into a positive, you know, make lemonade out of lemons, so to speak. And at least, you know, looking back on it now, it's a little clearer, obviously, than it was at the time. But I, I like to think that my whole family, not just me, you know, tried to take a, a negative and turn it into a positive. And so I remember at that time, you know, being very focused on what could I take out of it? What could I learn from it? How could I be a better person as a result of it? How could I make sure that I wasn't creating problems and headaches for my mother and brother because they already had enough problems and headaches? And I think that propelled me in some ways to take life a little bit more seriously and try to achieve some things when you realize that life is not a given and it can be cut short. So it probably motivated me to do some things in a little more serious way than I might have otherwise done as a 13-year-old kid at that time. That had a huge influence on me then, but it, you know, I even write about it in this book that we were talking about, The Secret Sauce for Leading Transformational Change, because it got me really thinking about the importance of things like from what to what. In other words, your life and your organization might be in a certain place today and you want to change some things. You want to make sure that you preserve the things that got you here that were successful and not throw the baby out with the bathwater while at the same time being as clear as you possibly can about what you're trying to get to next and, and why that's important to you. I think that skill of understanding from what to what that whole mentality of thinking about it started with my father's illness and death for me, but it translates many times over over the course of the last you know many, many years since he died into be clear about what you're trying to achieve and make sure that you don't blow up or throw away some of the things that got you here in the first place because obviously you are where you are today as a result of some successes and some positive things and you don't want to lose those on the way to making change happen in your life or in your organization. Thank you for sharing that with us. Ian, you shared so much, but I'd love to ask, is there another piece of career advice, something that you know maybe has really resonated with you, stayed with you throughout your career that you'd share with us? One of the best pieces of advice I think I ever got for a career or life was from a former boss and mentor of mine who basically said, find a void and fill it. And his philosophy, which has really stuck with me throughout the rest of my life and career, centers on the fact that there's plenty of things in life and in organizations that are screwed up. You know, people spend a lot of energy talking about things that don't work or that are broken or that are not being adequately addressed in some way. Most people are good at pointing those things out fretting about them, complaining about them, blaming other people for them. There are fewer people who are good at diving in, solving the problem, you know, figuring out what needs to be done, whether or not it fits in your job description or is even part of your function is kind of secondary. The more important thing is see a problem, try to resolve it. And I try to follow that advice 
over and over again ever since I was taught this many years ago. And I have found two things come as a result of finding a void and filling it. One is if you're successful, you solve a problem that's usually getting in your way and lots of other people's ways as well. And secondly, you develop a reputation among other people as somebody who can get things done. And both of those outcomes turn out to be fairly positive if you develop that sort of reputation. So I've tried to stick with that advice, both in career and life. That's awesome. Ian, thank you so much. Thank you for sharing so personally. And you've given us so many insights from your own journey and so many considerations on the future of work and thinking about what's ahead. I really enjoyed our conversation. So thank you so much. Me too, Mary. Great to be with you. And thanks for the invitation. For more resources on this topic, visit us on modern-career.com and on social media at modern underscore career. We'll include all the sources noted in this episode in our show notes. Look forward to talking again very soon. Music